Hello and welcome to Living in This Queer Body. This is Asha Pandurus. Thank you so much for listening. I want to keep you listening, so send me your feedback and share the episodes that resonate with people you love. When this episode airs, we have only a few more days to reach my goal of getting enough Patreon supporters to cover the monthly costs of production for this podcast. Because this is definitely DIY, but it isn't free. If you're able, please consider a donation before the end of June or any time. There is a link in the show notes for my Patreon, or you can go to patreon.com and search Living in This Queer Body. Finally, keep reviewing the show on iTunes, and thank you to everyone who's already rated the show and written really heartwarming and powerful reviews. Keep those coming because it energizes me and lets me know that there are people listening and connecting with this podcast. So, today's guest is Jenna Wortham, and I am honored to have had the opportunity to interview them. She's an award-winning podcaster and staff writer for the New York Times. If you haven't already listened to her podcast with Wesley Morris called Still Processing, I really think it's one of the most important podcasts out there today. In our conversation, we take as our starting point the power of a quiet morning ritual and then talk about how Jenna navigates grief, body pain, professional pressures, dysphoria, and challenges to embodiment specific to her lived experience. Jenna Wortham is a researcher, writer, thinker, Reiki practitioner, archivist, and budding herbalist living in Brooklyn, New York. Her work revolves around the intersection of technology and wellness, somatic healing, embodiment, popular culture, and liberatory politics. She is the author of the forthcoming visual anthology, Black Futures, with Kimberly Drew. Her podcast and journalism can be found at www.jennydeluxe.com, and her Instagram handle is at jennydeluxe. So Jenna, thank you for being here. It's really, it's really nice to have you and thank you for making time. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so excited. Cool. So I like to start each episode with kind of a request for you to reflect on how you at an early age came to learn about being in a body and what that means. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, it's complicated because I think my mind immediately goes to the moments in which something about my body was categorized or classified or identified as not normative. And Mm -hmm. so when I was really small, I was really chubby and I think, you know, most people in my family are, at least my immediate family, are really long, leggy, athletic people. Mm. And I was just like roly-poly from the jump. Like, I was born underweight, but by three months, you would not know. And there are all these pictures of me as just like this, like, beautiful chocolate marshmallow perched on 
my mom who looked like a, you know, a rail thin fair faucet's hip. And so I don't know. I remember people commenting on my form a lot mm. and not knowing how to receive it. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about because I'm really coming to terms with the ways in which I can and can't see my body as an adult. And so I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which I was conditioned to see my body as a young one. So that's kind of what immediately came to mind because that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, but I also have this really clear memory of in high school, I was very athletic or at some point, you know, I decided that I was going to become very athletic and I started working out. Maybe this was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And as I mentioned, you know, my family was athletic. Everybody played soccer. I played soccer too, but I wasn't as serious about it as they were. But I kind of made this decision in that summer that I was going to exercise. I was going to eat differently. And my figure like looked like the rest of my family. Like I lengthened out, like, I don't know, this like transformation happened. And I remember going to high school and I was really lucky in high school because I went to a small school and, you know, it was very possible to be, at least in my experience, it was very possible to be this like super, you know, super sciencey nerd, which I was, it was in all the um, IB, like bio, physics, chem classes. It was very possible to do that. And then it was also very possible to be quite popular. And in my case, you know, I joined a cheerleading squad and that was like my big kind of F you in a weird way, which was like, you can't tell me, <laughs> which is so funny to think about it because it was, the, I guess in some ways it was the most normative thing to do. But for me, it was the most rebellious thing I could do, which was just kind mm -hmm. of like fuck with everybody's perceptions of who I could be and who I was. And like, yes, I can win this prize in the science fair, but I'm also going to be rolling out on a JV cheerleading squad. <laughs> and I remember this should tell you a lot about me as a, as a, a teenager too. Cause it was, I didn't tell anybody except my best friend. And so when we all came back to school, you know, they have like the first week um, homecoming rally or whatever. And so all my friends are in the stands and it's again, it's a tiny school. So everybody's just like kind of getting to know each other back from the summer. And I just like come running out on the field, like in the full kit, you know, and like with the pom poms and my hair is like in a little ponytail and everyone just, all my friends in the stand just start losing it because in like the best way, it was really, really fun. I remember that moment too, is like one of the first moments I felt a lot of agency over the body that I was living in, which was, I get to decide, you know, how it, functions in space and time. Um, and I only did that for a semester and then I moved on, you know, but it was, it was a really interesting moment of deciding how I was going to feel in my skin versus other people telling me how mm -hmm. it, you know, was received by them. I don't know. It was, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It sounds like that. I mean, it's not only determining how you feel, but also kind of an awareness that you might, you know, in small ways have some agency around the story that was getting, you know, kind of the, the, the story that was being told about you and taking some pleasure and sort of fucking with people's expectations around that. I just wonder if maybe that kind of connects in some ways to, yeah, like anything that's kind of going on for you right now in your life around, you know, we talked prior to this interview about this idea of like your, performed self and your imagined self. And I think a lot of that 
seems like it was a play, you know, during that, in that moment. I think too, it was a moment of playing around with desirability because I, you know, I feel, I felt, and I feel quite masculine, even though I pretend to present quite femme. And so it was a really interesting moment to sort of go all the way on that spectrum and to sort of see what it would feel like to, you know, yeah, like, does this make me more desirable? How do I feel? I mean, I certainly love the feeling of being more muscular and athletic and, you know, cheerleaders work really hard. You've got to be able to lift people up and throw people in the air and you've got to be able to do all these things. And so it was, it was interesting because it wasn't necessarily that I felt prettier. I just, I felt more like tuned in and aware. And I think that feeling is something that I'm always I, I don't know. I remember that moment so clearly of really living in my skin. And I think it's something I work through now a lot. Like at what, in what ways do I feel most optimally in my body and what does mm-hmm. that look like? Mm-hmm. Do you want to share a little bit about what you're finding out about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked with you about this a little bit before, but something I'm really coming to terms with, and I loved how much Marley talked about this in her interview as well. And I, I'm trying to talk more about it because I just, take it as part of my day-to-day routine, but it's actually quite liberating to just speak it sometimes. I've really been coming to terms with what it feels like to live in a body that has chronic pain. And, you know, I do lots of things to manage that pain and to deal with it. I see a massage therapist who does a lot of body work. So it's not the most relaxing massage. It's like a very awake massage. Like we're always Mm. talking about what's what muscles are clenching up, where the tension is, like what's going on and trying to work through it. And a lot of like stretching, like sort of exercises mid, mid massage. And it it helps a lot. And I've been dabbling in like cranial sacral therapy and I take, um, everywhere I live has to have like a huge bathtub that I can soak in with Epsom salts and with some essential oils, because, you know, I'm trying to constantly trying to find peace beneath the skin as well. And part of dealing with that chronic pain is also acknowledging the roots of it, right? Like part of it comes from, I was a waitress for many years throughout, oh, I worked in restaurants in high school, but I waitressed my way through college. And then I waitressed, you know, pretty much up until I was hired by the times to, you know, to support myself. And I always chose looking cute over, no one told me how to support my feet or to support my body. And I just, you know, I remember coming home from long shifts and <clears throat> sitting on my couch and just feeling numb from the waist down and mm-hmm. having to like my partner at the time having to like massage my legs and like, you know, we both were, were servers. So, but you know, we were just really acknowledging like the weight of carrying things all the time. Like you just, you're kind of constantly using your body in these really physical ways without thinking about the wear and tear. Mm-hmm. And then I also went through this period where I was really battling with a lot of body dysmorphia and disordered eating and working out a lot. And so like punishing myself with these like, you know, extreme workouts, which was about trying to, you know, contain my body and keep it within this particular shape. I don't even know what the shape was. I just know that I needed to exercise in order to feel okay. But in hindsight too, I know that I was also working with a very anxious brain. And so extreme exercise is a way of, you know, releasing endorphins and helping kind of regulate. So I was just very unconsciously kind of pushing myself to this limit, but it also wreaked havoc on my back. And so I have a lot of issues with 
the joints that go into the tailbone and they can get out of whack easily. And so there's a daily tending that has to happen. Mm-hmm. So even this morning I had to wake up and see and think about like, you know, I'm a writer for my full-time job. So that I do this kind of cognitive assessment in the morning, which is like, where is my brain at today? Like, what kind of work can I do? Like, am I feeling super clear? Do I feel as a more of a research day? Do I feel creative? I mean, that's like kind of an assessment that I do um, because I work from home. And so I get to map out my days most days. So I can kind of, a lot of that work is figuring out where I'm at and then doing the work that's best suited for it. Mm. And now there's other assessment that happens, which is just like, well, where's my body at today? You know, and it's just, in some ways it's so beautiful because I, I treat myself like the most tenderest, precious cargo. And there's such a moment of like, you know, palpitating and like feeling and like what's going on. And then there's a plan that I devise based on that, you know, do I need a bath today? Do I need to use some comfrey salve? Do I need CBD massage? Like, what do I need to feel okay? And then the thing that I'm coming to terms with is just like some days I can't do anything to feel okay. So yeah, it's a really, really, really fascinating moment to be in a body for me. <laughs> and the other thing I'll say too is because I work from home, it's, I mean, I feel like I've worked, I've been working at the Times as a reporter and a writer for 10 years. And so I'm like, so embracing this privilege. I feel like I work so hard to earn. So I used, I didn't talk about it for a while because it, I don't know, I felt like a bit guilty when people have to deal with commutes and all these things, but now I'm just like, I earned it. I'm like, so Mm. proud that I've earned the trust and, you know, I have a job that lets me work in this way. And yeah, I'm like fully leaning into it full tilt. But I'm also noticing that when I do have to commute, there's this whole other thing that happens where I feel a lot of anxiety. Like I don't feel safe on the MTA and I don't feel safe in the density of New York all the time. And especially right now, you know, and there are all these reports of people, you know, being attacked or harassed, or I just, I feel so much anxiety when I go, um, when I know that I have to go into the city. So there's that element as well that's coming up too, which is so fascinating. So there's just all of these like calibrations and tune-ins and check-ins that I'm doing on a daily basis to figure out where I am in my body. And it sounds like so much work, but I also feel grateful for it because I think for so many years, I just completely ignored my body, you know, and I feel really grateful I've been thinking a lot about death and the end of life and being and sort of the ways in which our bodies evolve as we get into the later, the later parts of our lives. And so I feel that even though so much is difficult about being in my particular body right now, I still feel so grateful that I'm aware enough to recognize it. And it makes me appreciate the body even more. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can also relate to that a lot. I think you know, 10 years ago, if you would have said to me that I would have been, you know, much more aware, like you're (laughs) describing of much more reliant on checking in with my body in the same way you're describing every day, multiple times a day, you know, that would have sounded so tedious and kind of like unwanted in some ways, you know, many years ago. And I think that they're in part because I was afraid of what what I would discover if I attended to my body or, mm-hmm. you know, the perception of limitations. I like the way you're, you're talking about, you know, the evolution of giving yourself, I don't know if it's permission, but just giving, yeah, giving yourself permission to, to work from home to say, I, you know, I am 
grateful to my job for be, letting me, <laughs> but I also like, I I'm doing this, I'm going to do it, oh you God. know? And totally. Yeah. So Asher, the other thing too is, you know, I, I mean, I think New York, especially living in New York, it's a city that conditions you out of having a body because it's so dangerous to have a body. It's like, if you live fully in your body, when someone checks you on the subway and knocks into you, it's like, you feel it a thousand times more or like, you know, they're all the, the sacrifices we make of, of being in a city that, that demands so much of us and extracts so much of us that I think, you know, so we don't treat eating as a, as a pleasurable thing. It's like a, it's a functional thing. It's a thing you do to get through the day because you have to feel this body that has to get right. you somewhere. Right. And a very conscious decision that I've been making in the last couple of months is, you know, like I, I gave myself a budget and I splurged on like a beautiful ceramic French press, right? Because I just loved, before I was making espresso and like those little stovetop thingies, and they were, it was great. Like, that's a really great way to make coffee, but it didn't feel like sexy. You know, I was just like struggling with this metal contraption to make this espresso. And I was just like, why? And so I went into like cream barrel or whatever and was like, I'm buying that. And it was like 50 bucks, but it's, it's interesting how much, and I bought like a couple of really nice mugs from friends who are ceramicists. Right. And it's interesting how much like those little things are, they really do help me feel like I'm appreciating the experience of being alive in this particular way. And I, it really, really, really matters right now to me because I think, and it has to do a lot with kind of our news feeds and how, um, how much inputting we're getting, how much we're inputting about the news. But you know, I'm thinking about like what's happening in Sudan right now, right? And we don't actually don't know what's happening because there's been an internet blackout and people who are trying to push back against the government are being tortured. You know, so it's like I can hold that awareness and at the same time, like, you know, it's like I want to be active and vigilant in, in what's going on in the world and at the same time not take for granted that isn't my reality right now, you know? And so I'm trying to also really like move through the world with such exquisite deliberation because I feel like there's so many versions of reality that I could exist in and not have the ability to take any of this pleasure. And so that's something I'm thinking about too, which is just really trying to slow down, um, which is also a huge privilege and no one else in my life really has the ability to do that. And so I understand how, how rare it is, but I think I'm trying to really lean into that too. And it also is just like a conscious queer person in the world. It's like, there's so many things that condition us not to, to do that. Like we have to be hypervigilant and aware. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling now, but I was trying to make a point about just really recognizing the preciousness of having a body that can do things, um, even in the limited capacities to try to just really appreciate it. Right. Yeah. Like deepening. And it, it, I, I hear in what you're saying about the French press, sort of this idea that you're leaning into that, to what it, what pleasure and kind of slowness and intentionality th that you can kind of experience in that moment, you know, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to kind of focusing on like, I live in New York and I can't, it's like anxiety provoking to take the subway and, you know, like this kind right. of frenzied, um, anxiety that, many of us have for very <laughs> yeah. understandable ones, of course, but you know, yeah, there's something about the rituals that you're prioritizing. Actually, I think I can say it a better way because 
you were kind of clarifying and crystallizing for me the point, which is I, I actually have been dealing with a lot more anxiety than I'm used to dealing with on a regular basis. And I feel so overwhelmed by trying to figure out how to be kind of a conscious and active person in the world and be aware and supportive of my friends who are Sudanese and also reckoning that there's nothing I can do except offer love and support to them. And then trying to show up for all these other things, plus the demands of interpersonal, professional, social relationships, real world work demands. And sometimes the only thing that I can do to care for myself is take the 15 minutes to make the really nice coffee in the French press in the morning. And I feel like if that's the only nice thing I do for myself today, it's enough because I start my day out with such a gentle act of care in this really beautiful machine that weirdly is so calming (laughs) and so palliative. Um, no matter what else the day holds, like if I kind of start there, it mm-hmm. feels okay. Mm-hmm. How did you get to the point where you felt that this was essential, this kind of attending, you know, you use such like kind of loving words to talk about your body. And yet it, you know, from what you've said, it sounds like, you know, you've had this history of really a kind of having a punishing relationship with your body and a really um, disconnected relationship. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you think sort of happened in a way? Many things have happened and many things continue to happen that encourage and support those awakenings. And, you know, it it is sort of, a growing awareness of a type of a calling or a path. And I, I really feel that my life is devoted and dedicated to a type of service of work um, that I, I achieve through my profession as a journalist, my work as a podcast host, and then my work as a writer and creator of books. And that I really all just hope help people see themselves and feel seen and heard and recognized because that is really challenging in our, in our Mm -hmm. world. And so I think it's both recognizing that, Oh, this is the thing I'm actually dedicating my entire life to this type of service for the communities and the people that I care about the most. And in order to do that work, I had to have to start with myself. And so I think I mean, I know that for many years of living in New York, I just threw myself into the chaos of of being a business reporter and working in a newsroom. And in my earlier 20s, you know, I was hired by the Times when I was super young. Um, So I came out to New York when I was 25. And I threw myself into being a newsroom reporter, which was terrifying because I didn't go to journalism school. And I'd been a waitress and interning. And then I was hired to cover you know, social media and telecom and just sort of the ways in which our world was changing because of technology. Um, and I threw myself into it and because I, I kind of had to, cause I came here with like, you know, a couple hundred bucks in my savings. Like I just, I couldn't risk failure. And so I, in hindsight, I know that I wouldn't have failed or failure would have, could have meant so many things. But for me at that time, it meant financial failure. So I had to do anything I could to keep the job. And I put myself through the ringer and I didn't sleep. I went out all the time. I was constantly trying to build network from scratch and just all in in an effort to kind of have a professional 
community and to be really good at my job. And I really burned myself out super hard and I didn't know it for years, you know, and I think I pushed myself past the point of burnout for a really long time. And I started to really feel it manifest in crippling anxiety. I mean, I just, I hit a type of rock bottom with the way I was living and treating my body and treating myself that, you know, I was extremely depressed. I went through like kind of a scary weight loss that I didn't look good and it didn't feel good. And I just was having a lot of challenges functioning. I couldn't function anymore, I guess. And I continued to kind of push myself to work really hard. And it's interesting when, when you talk to people who've had these like really pivotal moments in their career, sometimes in my experience, sometimes people will say like, when things looked the best on the outside, they were actually sort of the most troubled on the inside. And that's definitely true for me. I was, you know, like 26, 27, maybe 28, but like writing these like front page stories was going on, you know, morning news was just felt like a really hot shot reporter and was really, really enjoying it. And felt like I was truly stepping into my light as a professional. And I was really unhappy, not surprisingly, because I'm, I'm not sure that's the work that I was being, I know that's not the work I was being called to do, but it was part of the process. I had to do that to get here. And so it's okay. But it was like, why am I like in Silicon Valley, like talking to these like super entitled, you know, 20 something year old white billionaires who are in my opinion, like really fucking up the world and no one cares because there's so much money on the table. And I'm part of this cycle because I'm writing about them and, but it's getting me all this critical acclaim. Like it was just a really confusing time. And within the midst of all this, you know, I was also having a really hard time in romantic relationships. I like couldn't really sustain a lot of intimacy and I was craving connection, craving belonging, was having a really hard time finding it throwing myself deeper into the work is kind of an antidote. And then in the midst of all of this, uh, my dad got really, really ill. He was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And I was going home a lot to try to care for him, but it was so overwhelming. And the American medical system is not set up to help sick people, which is really so depressing once you start to realize it. And, and many other people have had that realization earlier and, and, but it was just devastating to, mm. to sort of be confronted with that and also, mm-hmm. you know, take care of an ill parent and be a young person and, and feel the, the responsibility of that. And I could see that a lot of my dad's problems um, were secondary. The illness was the thing that was plaguing him, but the challenges in responding to them had to do with what poor health he'd been in his whole life. And I think I was really forced to confront with the origins of that, you know, like he was raised in rural South Carolina and didn't have access or wasn't taught to prioritize caretaking, you know, was drafted to serve in Vietnam and had a lot of issues with his skin, um, had been exposed to Agent Orange a lot. And just, you know, just, it wasn't even that he hadn't been taught to care for himself. It's just that he grew up in a world that did not value him. And so of course that didn't, manifest in his routines. And I think that was a real wake up call for me. And 
that was the moment at which I, I remember things started to shift, you know, and I was entering my Saturn return. So it made sense too, that I was having these sort of big, big awakenings about how I wanted to move and where I wanted to be. But that's really what set me on a path of what I'll just call wellness and to just give it a really blanket term, even though it's so much more dynamic than that. And I Mm -hmm. also don't like the way wellness gets kind of hashtagged and categorized, but it it does explain the sort of journey that I started on, which was thinking about nutrition, thinking about rest, thinking a lot about caretaking in ways that I really didn't have the luxury to before because I was so focused on survival. Mm -hmm. And I kind of seeing my dad at the end of his life, who had been in a similar mindset, Mm-hmm. I was just like, he and his grandmother and her grandmother and her grandmother did not fight the fights they fought for me to end up in the same way. And yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's, that was a big turning point for me. And it's still, a, it's still a journey that I'm on because it changes all the time and it's iterative and, and some things work and some things don't work. But I think I had to really examine how I was living and recognize that it was making me really unhappy and unable to sustain the types of intimate relationships that I wanted with myself and with other people. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because I, you know, the image of you in that, the kind of depleted, not resource state that you were in, imagining you then going to care for your father from that place you know I imagine I guess I can just imagine that things impacted you really deeply and also uh, I wonder how your relationships or your relationship to intimacy interpersonal relationships have have maybe shifted after this set of realizations that you had around prioritizing you know your relationship with yourself and your body but also how it's kind of made you potentially more available for intimacy and connection in different ways. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much work, capital W, w lowercase W that goes into all of that, you know? And I think in, I think the very beginning of that journey was having to confront the sort of narratives that I had and were contained within me and pre-programmed into me to not value myself or have a high self-worth, which impacted my ability to really care for myself, you know, and I had to start really thinking about the world and how I was being conditioned to not see myself as valuable. All the messaging that we get in society teaches us that our bodies, you know, that we aren't on the margins and that we are not the most important type of person in our society. And so, you know, there was like a metaphoric, like finding a snake bite and trying to draw out the poison. And that was really hard to do, you know, because those narratives are so comfortable and it's so easy to be like, well, I'm a fuck up or like no one loves me or none of this matters. And, you know, I had to also look at my circles and really think about, the people and the environments that were facilitating that narrative. Right. And I had to go through like a really big purge and that was also really hard too. And I had to really reorient myself around positive relationships. And I don't necessarily mean like 
people who are positive, but I just mean mm-hmm. the relationships that helped me feel belonged and <laughs> it's not a word, but you know, the finding the friendships that helped me feel supportive and finding the friendships where people were also confronting those things and not being bogged down with people who had no desire to leave those narratives, you know, and, and that was really, really hard. I went through some really big shifts in friendships and, you know, some friends, we're also starting to walk along those paths and we've been able to walk along them together. And those mm-hmm. are some of the most joyful relationships that I have. And I think that was kind of where I started really practicing love and loving kindness and unconditional love and realizing that these were safe spaces where, you know, that the people could be safe spaces and that people could be safe harbors. And I could share sort of the things that I was grappling with and not be met with kind of a strange look or somebody who was so uncomfortable because they weren't there themselves. And I think that's when my world started to kind of reassemble too. And started to, Mm. you know, I, I felt like I often, I often use this analogy when I'm thinking about when I know things are coming into alignment or things are coming into place, but it's like the very last scene in the matrix when Neo starts seeing everything in zeros and ones. And it's just like, Oh, I get it. Like whenever I have that feeling, I know I'm, I'm like unlocking something or I figured out a new passcode or I'm getting closer to some awakening or revelation about myself. And so that's those types of feelings were happening for me as I was discovering meditation or as I was discovering, you know, things like radical Dharma or I was discovering Reiki or discovering, um, my queerness, you know, and, and becoming friends with people who also were at the intersection of all the same identities that I held too, and prioritize the same things that I prioritized too, which was sort of a more holistic living. You know, my friendships with Black queer women have been the things that have saved me, you know, over and over again. I don't have to modify myself to belong here, which was so much of my early 20s and my whole life, really. And so those are the things that that's, it's funny because that's why I'm kind of like, it's wellness, but not because a lot of it's like just being seen for who I am. And sometimes that's not like a thing that you can get in a class or you can get in a book or you can get in a probiotic, even though I love probiotics, you know, but those aren't the things that have made me be well necessarily. It, it really is this like deep interrogation of the interiority and being so willing to look at the parts that you don't like and have compassion and forgiveness for them until the point you just accept them, you know, and sometimes that's, again, like surrounding yourself with people around you who, that help you accept yourself. Yeah. I mean, the, the word that comes to mind is compartmentalization, like this idea that in order to, a a lot of your earlier experiences, it sounds like in order to kind of navigate them everything had to have a place and there was a way of kind of keeping everything organized, every, all the different parts of you sort of organizing and compartmentalized and that that can create a tremendous amount of anxiety, but it can also be somewhat soothing to certain parts of your anxiety. And it sounds like, you know, in some ways, this community of people has just has really been, I love how you say it's like, you can't get that from a probiotic, you know, you, you can't get that kind of like permission and Mm -hmm. permission to kind of like stop compartmentalizing so much. Yes. 
And I, I actually do have one friend and we will voice note each other a lot and ask for permission to like be messy oh. or be or permission to be a ball of nerves or just like permission to not complete something. And it's, it's just such a cathartic exercise because of course, you know, you don't need to ask someone, but again, it's like vocalizing it and remembering that it's okay. Cause we can get so caught up in our own cognitive narratives. But I think too, that was the thing I, I really an energy worker once told me that, you know, I was like putting too many parts of myself in different places and like losing those parts. And that's, that's really like, you know, again, I, I started to realize how deeply I would dissociate to kind of be functional and recognizing the ways in which it was harder and harder to come back into myself. And it was making me feel Mm -hmm. distant and unable to connect. And it wasn't serving me, you know, it was, it was making it hard to be vulnerable and like intimate, you know? And so work and understanding kind of where that programming happened in childhood. I'm still on that path too. Just drawing awareness to it has been so transformative for me and to compartmentalize and package the self and, you know, do the things that allow you to be functional. But I also sort of have an understanding of how I want to show up as a partner, how I want to show up eventually as a parent very strongly that this is the work that will unlock that for me. So that kind of helps me maintain my, my commitment to it. But I also wanted to speak to um, something you said that, hold on, I'm losing. I'll go back to it. Oh yeah. About all the different selves. And when you're doing self-work and you're doing journey work, like you kind of will be like, I'm going through periods of sobriety and going through periods of like, you know, deep, just like meditative work because I'm like, I, I use lots of things not to feel uncomfortable emotions. And I, I watch a lot of TV for work and I go to a lot of movies for work. And then the other day I was like feeling really stressed out and started watching TV. And then I was like, oh no, I'm like getting high on TV. Like <laughs> I can recognize this pattern. So it was just like, you know, just always having to be aware of like the crutches we use and the ways that we try to tune out. It's interesting because I've been thinking so much about my relationship to Instagram and social media. And I am lucky in that. I have always had such a arm's length cynical relationship to social media because I came to work at the time so young and now it's so commonplace that you know corporations and institutions and publishing entities are on social media and they use it as part of their identity to get people familiar with what they have to offer. But it was really new and unfamiliar um, in 2009, 2010, when I was completely fluid, completely native, just like totally having fun online all the time. And, you know, some of my first friends in New York came through online connections. Mm-hmm. I have a chat. I have so many group chats. I have one chat room that's like, you know, 20 or so media folks and tech bros and people that I, you know, have a very particular relationship to that I don't ever really see, but we just chat. But I see the notifications come in and it's so, there's so many people on it. And, and so having an online identity was so integral to expression of self and experience of self that coming into a place where there was a lot of anxiety around potential for embarrassment via these platforms that I conditioned myself very early on not to use social media as an outlet for like frustration or anger or I don't know like I I had to sort of always compartmentalize myself online a little bit and it's helped me because I I kind of feel like I don't use it 
it's not something that I get high on or, or use in, in, a, in a way that's unhealthy, I think, even though I'm super aware of how social media kind of does spark certain feelings sometimes or negative emotions. Like I'm, I feel like I've been so conscious of it for so long that I have a very healthy relationship to it. But I also, I don't rely on social media for my livelihood, right? And, and mm-hmm. so many people do. And because you're trying to figure out how best to present yourself as a means for, you know, you know, I don't know, like a type of aesthetic capitalism maybe where so much of your worth is tied to how good you are at this particular medium, which is so wrapped up in image and so wrapped up in self-presentation. But I'm very lucky that that's not directly tied to my livelihood, right? But because I have a denial sometimes about how visible my professional life is, and it's, it's, this thing is happening more and more where I'll think I'm in kind of a relatively anonymous space or even a space where I'm trying to do wellness work, right? Like I'll be at a, at a, maybe a Buddhist retreat or I'll be in a sound bath or um, meeting a new healer that I'm going to work with in some capacity. And they'll reveal that they know me already. And it always throws me. And I think I've had to really come to terms with, the ways in which I can't compartmentalize the perception of self too, which has been like, I think mm-hmm. that's the work I'm doing right now is like letting go of this fantasy of, I'm not going to say privacy because I'm a very private person and that's a very real thing that I hold on to, but just like letting go of this fantasy of like being able to keep the professional and personal separate. And that's mm-hmm. like a thing I'm grappling with so much right now. And that leads to a certain type of, of anxiety and one great example is I was walking down the street. I had to move for various reasons recently. And I was walking down the street and like loving, I was like, Oh my God, I haven't run into anybody that I know, like feeling so excited. And I was walking, like turning the corner about to go into my building. And this woman was like, I love your work. And I was like, Oh, and then my anxious brain was like, don't stop. Don't stop. She can't know where you live. <laughs> and so yeah. I like, kept going around the block and it was it was just such a weird thing but it's like I just don't like people knowing that information about me I don't want strangers to know where I live even if they seem young and wonderful and potentially someone I'd be friends with it just really freaks me out and so I don't know it's just like this thing of like really coming to terms with idealized versions of what it, it can be like to move to the world as me and then the kind of hard brunt reality that I'm coming to terms with all the time, you know, in, in ways that, you know, sometimes I'll be like, I had an experience a couple of years ago where I was going through a separation with someone that I was seeing and I was in a bar and I was weeping because I was just really emotional about it and sad. And we were having this really intimate conversation. And I, I thought the bar was empty, which is why I chose it somebody had tweeted at me like in the same bar as Jenny Deluxe. And I was like, Oh my God, like this person was witnessing something so deeply personal, but that was their takeaway, you know? And so much so they wanted to perform it, right? Like that experience and which I, which is fine, you know, but it just, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm like really working through that right now. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of I mean I'm I'm hearing a lot of, I'd love to talk to you about this more but you know just I'm hearing a lot of elements of mindfulness practice and like discernment and really moment to moment trying to 
both maintain whatever, you know, kind of boundaries around safety you need, emotional safety, whatever, but also kind of recognizing and accepting that you are showing up in the world as a public, you know, figure in a way. And that that is part of the experience of being in your body and being who you are is that that's part of it. Right. And so if you kind of compartmentalize that and it's difficult, I mean, it sounds really difficult to navigate, but that, that the more you compartmentalize, the more anxiety you feel, but also there are ways that, right. I don't know that there's no solution really. I'm just, it sounds like, it sounds like that kind of some version of your mindfulness practice is, is helpful in that um, because it really does take things moment to moment as opposed yeah. to being flooded with more pervasive anxiety about the predicament. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I do notice that when I'm caring for myself and I'm, and I'm engaged in more, more healthful caretaking which right now really consists of sleep. I sleep a lot and it's not always possible. Like I'm in a moment between deadlines right now. So I just came off of a deadline and then before some really big deadlines. So I, I know that the, I, I'm familiar with the way that work ebb and flows in my world. And so like right now I'm like, okay, prioritize sleep. Like sobriety and sleeping are like going to help you feel so good. So don't take this free time to like fill your schedule with a million things knowing and taking advantage of an ebb or, or, a, or a, a lull. But I also, you know, I notice that when I'm, when I'm doing that, I can meet those moments with grace and I don't feel as like preyed upon, which is, a, which is like an unkind way to say it. But I think sometimes when it's, that bubble is punctured, it can be really jarring. Um, but I do notice that when I'm, I'm caring for myself more, you know, I don't feel it's, it's like easier. Yeah. It's easier to meet those moments with grace. And that, that is kind of how I want to move through the world. And I am grateful for my job and it's, it actually is so affirming that people respond to the work so positively and that it is so meaningful for them. So when I can really receive that, it is nourishing. And so it's like, I do, I do recognize that like that in a, in a way it's like another extension of dissociation too. It's like, I have Mm -hmm. to stop thinking that like I just have to be so present in all the iterations of self every time I, in every moment, because thinking I'm moving in the world in one way and then being confronted with this other reality is so disorienting that that doesn't serve me either. I feel like I'm being so vague. It's hard. it's like hard because I'm I feel like I'm trying to like talk, not sound so woo woo, but um, but yeah, it's been an interesting it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, I hear you. I, I understand what you mean about that. I I feel I sometimes have that a similar experience of feeling like I'm talking really broadly, but I'm or it and that it does kind of enter into these categories of like being present and doing that, you know, being <laughs> mindful. But but like the actual experience of that or the actual practice of that is actually really difficult and mm-hmm. um, kind so of so difficult. I mean, I like, I have the hardest time meditating. That's even like, I I hesitate to use the word meditation because I'm not sitting on a cushion singing Om Shanti, even though when I'm in rooms and that is part of like a yoga or a breathwork thing, like I'm so happy to do it. But meditation is not like that type of meditation has never worked its way into my day-to-day practice. Like I, I go on a big thing I do is go on walks. Like I will, I'm a walking meditator, you know, and that is a meditative practice. Like drawing yourself a bath is a meditative practice. Like I like to cook for myself at home when I can, like that is also a meditative practice to me. And so 
trying to find the ways that help me feel dropped in is so important. And so it's like, I'm trying to also, cause I think too, like when I talk about mindfulness, friends will be like, oh, I should meditate more. And I always have to kind of jump in and be like, let's be really clear what we're talking about. Cause the language is so important. And what you're thinking of as meditation is not what I'm thinking of as meditation. Yeah. So let's, let's work through it. You know, like looking at a sunset is meditative for me. And so right. I think like demystifying and that's like, that's like part of, that's part of this like other tier of work. I know I'm being called to do, which is like demystifying and helping make accessible ways of caring for the self and ways of being well. And they aren't things that cost a lot of money and they aren't things that are in these hallowed rooms. And I think as someone who has dabbled in so many different parts of what that can look like, you know, I often feel really alienated in those rooms and it frustrates me. It's like, and it it frustrates me that the tools that really do help us manage and navigate these really chaotic and unruly bodies and lives are often the realms of, you know, cisgender white people mm-hmm. and they feel very unwelcoming and alienating. And sometimes going into those spaces involves and results in more of the trauma and unrest yes. and anxiety that you're trying to escape from. And so yes you know, I'm kind of stepping into this, this awareness of self that is the next entry point for me of a calling is that work because Mm -hmm. I have been so fortunate. Like I I wouldn't be the person I am today if people did not take my hand and walk me into those rooms and help me access those tools, you know? Yeah. So like, I, I don't know. It's like things like that. Like I'm really, really, really trying to set up my life right now. And I think it will happen in a couple of years. So just also kind of like that long view, but I'm a Scorpio. So I'm a planner and I like to wait <laughs> for the time to strike, but also recognizing too, that like, I see so many people who need those tools, right. But feel like they aren't for them or they don't yes. have access to them or they're quite expensive. And it's, it's true that that's actually the way most people do interface with those things is that they are right out of reach and they feel hierarchical and they feel they they center a white bodied experience and they're not wrong. Right. They're not wrong. And also I think that there's a lot of, as you were talking about, like a lot of prescriptive notions that I think I'm in some ways I'm trying to break down in, in, in doing this podcast, like being able to just, you know, for listeners just to be able to hear you talk about, your process, your thinking behind buying the French press, you know, I think that is an invitation to, for people to reflect in their own lives. Um, if they connect with you or feel like they could connect with you or certain parts of your experience to be able to think about how they could do that in their own life, you know? And I think that's not like it, it, it doesn't, it's not so prescriptive. It's sort of more expansive and just a, a kind of suggestion or a, like embodied experience we're like hearing about some aspects of your embodied experience and those of others so that's part of it I think is just okay. being able to tell our stories you know yeah and and I also love like the thing I've really enjoyed about your podcast too is I love how other people live like I, I think there's so yeah. much of life that feels you know <laughs> I think there's this thing that happens on social media where you see these, these little snippets and glimpses of how people are living and your brain just kind of autocorrects into assuming that that is how you should be living or 
that someone's figured it out or, you know, or it feels really inaccessible. Like how did that person get there? How did that person get to this cottage, to this apartment, to this house? And yes. the thing I, I dislike about social media is that it very, it discourages us not to show the sweat, you know? And I, I think about like, <laughs> I think a lot about like pop musicians and like, you never want to see them working too hard. And the moment you see the sweat stains, the moment you see the creases, the moment you see all the filth, it it detracts from the performance and the escapism of that enjoyment. And I, I, I actually think social media is the same. And, and we're not really encouraged to perform work and we're not really encouraged to perform the labor that goes into all of it. And I, and I have a number of friends who do deep influencer work and the story on their stories versus the reality of what I know they have to go through to live these extremely glamorous lives, you know, that anybody has to actually is vastly different and mm-hmm. that we don't get to see it is a disservice because there's so much about living that is concealed from each other that I think could be really useful if we sort of were okay being a little bit more vulnerable and talking about the, the struggles and the challenges and the rewards and the things that make it more manageable. Um, because that's, only, that's the only way I've ever learned. I, I don't feel like, you know, I've understood how to be anything without watching somebody else or, and then kind of like Frankensteining my own version yeah. of life or my own version of, you know, and I don't know, I'm not sure where the idea for the French press came from. Actually, I think I know I was staying in an Airbnb for work in San Francisco and it was just a really chaotic trip. And it was the first, I've, I'm getting back into tech reporting because I feel like the industries and audiences are finally ready to have the conversations about how these new platforms really replicate power structures. And so I'm, I'm excited to start writing more about the things I care about with, mm. with, within those arenas. And it was just a really stressful work trip. And the Airbnb that I was staying in had really nice coffee and a French press. And I just really enjoyed the experience of, and it, it partially too is because San Francisco is so expensive that I had to stay all the way out by the beach, which was great. I love the ocean. I'm such a water baby. It was really healing to like hear the ocean, be able to see it, but there was nothing walkable near me. Mm-hmm. And so I had to sort of, you know, make sure that I was resourced before I went out into my day. And I didn't want to be super dependent on like a 20 minute Uber ride to a coffee shop that might be really packed before I could go to a meeting. You know, I, I wanted to have a little bit of agency over how the mornings went. And so I used the French press every day and I was just like, God damn, this is nice. Like I make this coffee and I'm sitting here looking at the ocean, like, could it be this simple? And so I kind of decided like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I bought some really nice coffee in San Francisco. And I'm, I'm such a like, I'm such a frugally minded person because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And so spending money on like a nice bag of coffee at home is out of the ordinary for me. You know, it is like the ultimate luxury and I feel guilty about it. Like, I'm just like, I like Dunkin' Donuts. There's no problem with Dunkin' Donuts, you know? And it is good. I stand by that coffee. It's very good coffee. (laughs) But there is something about like the intentionality of like, this is the special coffee that I'm buying to, you know, have for myself. And it frankly isn't that much more expensive than Dunkin' Donuts. And I'm sure, and I know actually for a fact, it's much more, has a much more sustainable relationship, you know, which is the other thing I'm thinking about too at this moment in life. And so it just feels like a much cleaner experience. And 
when I got home, I love the coffee so much that my friend Tarvat, who lives out there, I was like, I love this coffee. And she's such a sweetheart and such a caretaker and has totally been a person in my life who really fully embraces me and accepts me. She's an incredible artist that lives in the Bay. And it's kind of like a, a I feel like we reparent each other a lot. Like we just mm-hmm. love on each other so hard, but she just sent me a box of all this coffee. You know, she went to the coffee shop and was like, you should, you deserve this coffee every day and just sent like a ton of it. And was like, this is on offer anytime you want more of this coffee, I will personally deliver it to you. And I know that's a real offer. And so it's, it's weird how this little thing has just become this. And I, and I think too, when I make the coffee, I'm reminded of that. Like it reminds me of that experience of having coffee and seeing the ocean. And it reminds me of like, this coffee also came from a friend who is so invested in my well-being that I have to be invested in it too. Mm. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it feels so small, but it it really is this like ripple effect. Yeah. It's actually quite, quite expansive in a way. It contains, the coffee contains a lot of different, a, a lot of different beautiful things in some ways. So I want to, I know we could, I wish we could talk for a bit longer, but we, um, I have one last question for you. And then I'd like to hear a little bit about how people can find out about your work. So the last question I'd like to ask is if you could take a moment to reflect on kind of a younger part of yourself, maybe the younger part that we were talking about earlier, at the beginning of the, the interview and what you might knowing all the things you know now like to say or compel someone to say to that younger part of you? Oh, oh my God. I love thinking about baby deluxe. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so hard, right? Because I don't want to be prescriptive or give advice because I had to go through all of those iterations to get here. But I think that what's most helpful to me as an adult that I want to remind myself, I would want to remind a younger version of myself to continue to cultivate and nurture is just like the tenderness, you know, and like the curiosity and like the gentleness. And I think I was a very, very tender Mm. baby and it was such, there were so many opportunities to, shed that or conceal that or get rid of it in order to try to meet the harshness of other people and the world from a much more protected space. And I think I'm really, really grateful for the ways in which that didn't happen and the ways in which I stayed soft and stayed open and didn't calcify to the Mm -hmm. point of brittleness. Yes. Um, Because I ultimately really do believe in that as, I don't know, like a type of salvation, you know, because at least for me in my experience, it's what allows me to greet the world and new opportunities and my job, my various jobs and friends and partners with wonder, you know, like I just, I don't know. It feels really incredible to not be so self-conscious or worried about, you know, lost in some sort of internal narrative or projections about worrying what other people think or looking dumb or being a screw up and just being so tender to say like, I don't know, like, yeah, to just 
be available to love. (laughs) So I'm just thinking about like, it's so easy to close yourself off, you know, and so it's so easy. It's easier in many ways to close yourself off to, you know, as a form of self-protection, which are, which is there for a very good reason, you know, of not being open or vulnerable to a new experience or a new idea or a new person. But I'm really grateful for the ways that I've been able to stay soft and come back to that softness. Mm, yeah. And so I, I really prioritize that. And yeah. that's, that's like the thing I would relay to a younger version of self or anyone to mm-hmm. not lose that part of yourself or not sacrifice that part of yourself for some greater means of survival. And even mm-hmm. if you have to revert, to let it go for survival to try to come back to it in a safer moment, because it is the thing I think that is so precious and important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not forget about it. Let's talk a little bit about how people can find out about the kind of multitude of things that you do and put out in the world. There's so many things that are out in the world and they don't all live in the same place. So I don't know, actually. I mean, I think my website is a good place to start and I need to update it, but it's jennydeluxe.com. And so I'm trying to, I think I'm trying to use that as a focal point for the work, but generally speaking, social media is a great place to find out about the things that I'm working on, both Instagram and Twitter. I tend to Mm -hmm. share little snippets of the things that are coming through on both of those. And Mm -hmm. my handle for everything is the same, which is just at Jenny Deluxe. Mm-hmm. And do you want to talk a bit about, or for a moment about your upcoming book anthology? Yes. So I'm working on a book project with Kimberly Drew that is called Black Futures. And it is so many things all at once. It is a time capsule. It is an invitation. It is an archive. It is a call to action. It is the two of us sort of taking a moment and thinking about this particular iteration of Black cultural production and trying to preserve it, catalog it, celebrate it. Um, It is something so much bigger than a book can contain. And so hopefully it will just be uh, a celebratory opportunity to think about all the ways in which that's happening. But the book is in motion. It'll be out early next year. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And it was so nice to talk to you. Likewise. Um, Have a really good day, Asher. Thank you. 